friends, I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and also on Sirius XM Channel 130. If you want to listen to our show as a podcast, go directly to your favorite platform or to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today my co-hostess is my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson. We have a great show lined up for you today with Edward Penton. He has been on the Vatican beat for almost 20 years. Now he writes for the National Catholic Register, and he'll be telling us about his new book called The Next Pope. But first, State Senator Katrina Jackson of Louisiana joins us. She's a fierce pro-life Democrat who has a great deal to say on Planned Parenthood's move to take down the name of their founder, Margaret Sanger, recognizing her promotion of eugenics and racism, and, of course, much more. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm joined by my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson. Hello, Maureen. Hello there. Great to be on with you today. I'm really looking forward to chatting with our guest today. Yes, because our guest is the one and only pro-life state senator of Louisiana, Senator Katrina Jackson. She's a pro-life Democrat who has long defied the abortion lobby's stereotypes that they like to talk up. Uh, Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Senator. Jackson. Oh, thank you. I am so excited to be on with you ladies today to talk about such an important issue and one that's near and dear, I, I believe, to all of our hearts. Senator, um, you've you've been a longtime pro-life advocate, and it's quite a distinction because um, most Democrats are not pro-life, so you have to swim against the current. So, for instance, you spoke at the March for Life in Washington, D.C. in 2016. So what inspires you? What fills you with energy to, to go against the culture and against the grain? Uh, my faith in God for me and I know it's different from for other some others but whatever drives you drives you for me it's my faith in God it's uh, knowing that I am answerable to um, someone higher than me and then it's just my love for people it, it transcends even that for those who are not there in their faith it's just your love for people and then let me tell you I had this epiphany um, one day I was up speaking I can't remember where I was in the country, but I was speaking and I was talking about life. And I was born, born after a time that Roe versus Wade was law. And it was simple. It said, choose life because someone chose yours. Hmm. Because every one mother had an option. And when you look at yourself and say, you know, when you really internalize that, that decision makes your life an option, even at 40 or 50 or 30 or 20. You have to go back in 15 and realize that you're living a life that, although it was yours, the law gave someone a choice to whether or not to bring you into this world. And so that's that's the third thing. You know, Senator, that really resonates with me. I think many people in the pro-life movement, people who feel strongly pro-life, have a moment like that in their lives where they suddenly go from sort of being generally pro-life to being committed and being able to go out there. For me, it was the adoption of our fifth child. One day after I brought her home, I looked at her and I, I thought to myself, this was an unwanted child. This was a child who had no future, who didn't fit in into all those categories of wantedness. And if, if she She's so fabulous, and all the other ones must be so fabulous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some of us, if you talk to uh, people everywhere, a lot of us have come out of uh, 
situations that were not ideal. Mm-hmm. That, you know, uh, if you look at the abortion advocates and why they say that women should have choice, many of us, many of them who are screaming that would not have been, been here. And that's the reality of what happens and, and how we can demean a life just based on circumstances when we all deserve to live. So true. Senator Jackson, this is Maureen, and we've we've admired you from afar for a very long time, so we're so honored to be speaking with you today. We've heard you speak before, of course, at the March for Life, and we followed with great interest the law that you sponsored in Louisiana that required abortionists to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. So can you take a minute to just explain that law to us? What did you see? What motivated you to pass that law and why did you feel that abortion clinics needed this regulation uh first it was it was the countless number of women who came to the health and welfare committee over the years i was serving and who talked about it all over the internet their experiences at abortion facilities but also which was unique for many other state louisiana has a law on the books that we've had for years that says that um if you if you perform a surgical procedure at any ambulatory surgical center, which means a center that doesn't have a hospital attached to it, right, independently standing like abortion facilities are, that that doctor must have admitting privileges uh, for continuity of care and to intervene in a time uh, if there's a complication from the surgery. Because Louisiana has separate statutes for uh, to regulate abortions, this general statute did not cover that. So abortion clinics are the only clinics in Louisiana where a physician doesn't does not have to have admitting privileges. Also, the motivating factor was this. When we found reports that radiologists and eye doctors were performing abortions, no training, which means when there is a complication, uh, when a woman hemorrhages and, you know, there's a finite time there where you should respond before there are. Um, irreversible consequences to the woman's health and her ability to bear children at a later age that we knew it was necessary. We're extremely disappointed in the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, we still stand on the law. We know that it was legal in our state and we know that it didn't cause a barrier because the law has been in place for every other surgical center. Also getting privileges in hospitals allows the state to weed out bad actors, uh, unethical and incompetent abortion doctors. And if I remember in the one of the amicus briefs that went up to the Supreme Court on this issue, there were many abortion doctors in these clinics who had very bad uh, histories as far as their care for women and the danger that they posed to women of Louisiana. Is this so? Yeah, that is the truth. Like um, one instance that happened right after the bill passed and when when the abortion facilities filed the injunction was that a woman that was considered high risk went into a clinic. Uh, the law says and, and the standard of care says that when a woman is having an abortion who's high risk, that physician must have um, certain equipment, uh, medical equipment and medical supplies in office when he or she performs that abortion. The physician didn't check, and it was as simple as fluids from an IV bag that he had none of them. So the woman became high risk. You know, she was high risk. She entered the gray zone during the abortion procedure, and he could not respond. That woman uh, now can never have kids ever in her life. 
Oh, no. Because that physician didn't follow the required procedure of, I've checked my list, and before I perform this abortion, I have these medical supplies. And it wasn't expensive medical supplies. It was it, it was literally an IV bag full of fluids just in case something happened during the procedure. And so we've seen this over and over again. We've seen testimony and heard testimony of women who say that when they begin to hemorrhage, all their abortion physician could do was call 911. Hmm. And that was it. And and so those are the things that, that never are really talked about. But we've had women to come to the forefront and begin to let us know that this is happening. And we've had many instances in the state of Louisiana. People say, well, the abortion rate, uh, complications from abortion is so low. It's not the truth. Deaths are low. Complications are not low. And even when they're low, this is what I've told them. In every other area of law and, and health care, I'm expected to go into the legislature and pass laws that protect those patients to the utmost. That's right. It amazes me that an exception has been made for women when it comes to an abortion, that it's considered taboo for female legislators to go in and assert the same care and standard of care and the same diligence in passing laws to protect women who find themselves in this unfortunate position of having an abortion. And yet they, they me. and yet they support the the lack of regulation in the name of women's safety and women's liberation. What do you think of right. that? That kind of uh, reasoning. I, I think that it's that age old thing where we put profit driven industries over the health and safety of women, mm -hmm. and it's sad to see women begin to perpetuate that because they grew up sometimes in a society that has done that, and so. They believe and people have fed them that it's women's rights when the truth is in order to truly assert your right, you put qualified physicians in every position, period. Mm -hmm. Right now in the state of Louisiana, if a man goes to have a, um, a vasectomy, that physician is going to have to have admitting privileges. Wow. Uh, such a double standard. And you know... Right. Even from a legal point of view, it seems the abortion clinics shouldn't even have standing in this case. Like, why why are the abortion clinics able to speak on behalf of women when there was this extensive testimony that you referred to, unsanitary conditions? So it, it seems that they shouldn't even have the standing that if women themselves were to sue, that would be different. But the abortion clinic suing, it's kind of like the fox guarding the hen house, right? It is. And that's what happened. Basically, no woman in the state of Louisiana, no patient filed suit against this bill or this law. It was abortion providers who make money off of abortions. And so their interest was not the health and safety of the patient. It was their bottom line profits. And it left women without the, the same health care. I've had pro-choice women to debate me on Facebook and when they understand what the bill does and when I tell them that radiologists have performed abortions, you know what they say? Oh, I didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. I thought that every abortion facility was was manned by OBGYNs. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences and we are talking to Senator Katrina Jackson from Louisiana. 
So it, it must have been such an incredible disappointment for you after doing all this research and finding all this evidence and testimony and passing the, the state law, having it wind its way all the way up through the court system, only to have the Supreme Court rule against the law. So can you explain what on earth was their reasoning and how did you deal with the disappointment of, of the ruling? <laughs> Oh, that morning will probably live for a long time. I was honestly just getting off the call with my physician on uh, some healthcare issues where all is well, but I have to get a a, a yearly checkup on some things. And just getting off the phone with my physician saying, "Hey, we need you to come back in." And the next call I received, because um, I was I was like, "Oh my God, what's happening? Why do I have to go back in?" And I, the next call that I received was from. Um, my staff telling me that the Supreme Court had just ruled against us. So I remember standing in my apartment in Baton Rouge down in legislative session, and it was just a double blow that morning. It really was. And I thought about the care that I was receiving. Uh, I thought I had just talked to them, and I was like, God, this is going to, so many women will not receive the same level of health care in this area that we receive from our OBGYNs and our reproductive doctors and every specialist and everyone who, go, you know, brings life into this world. And so I, I remember that feeling. It was a surreal feeling at that moment. And I was um, getting dressed for session. I'm very transparent. And I literally text the Senate president and said, I'm just not going to be there on time. Hmm. I, I, I just received a decision that I believe is a blow to women and, and I need a moment. And he, te- he literally said, I understand. He understood in that moment what was happening. And so it took me about 30 or 40 minutes um, extra to prepare myself to walk out the door, not for me, but just a disappointment. And as I'm, preparing to walk out the door the second call came and said we've just digested the decision and justice roberts says that he agrees with your law but he's going to put court precedence over what he agrees with and that for me was another blow and i and i have such great respect for the supreme court justices regardless of how they rule and so let me put that out there first i'll never disrespect one of them Um, But I can really talk about the disappointment when someone says, I agree with what you did. However, the court ruled last time that it was unconstitutional. So even though I agree with what the law does, I agree that it's appropriate because I believe that I need to stand with the court on previous decisions. Let me tell you how that made me feel as a black woman. I'm going to get to the nitty gritty of this, right? I said that if every justice went against what they believed in, to stand with an old court's ruling, I would still live in a segregated society under Jim Crow laws. <laughs> and I could not understand that reasoning. It took me to a place where I literally could not understand it because it went deeper than life for me. You know, it went to the, the very core of doing what's right and ruling how you believe you should rule. Every decision that the Supreme Court made previously is not the right decision. That is so powerful. That is so yeah. powerful, Senator, because you're so right. We we have to always seek the good and, and the common good of our country and not to be bound by bad decisions in the past. And Roe v. Wade was a very bad decision. It's led to the death of millions and millions of Americans. Right. 
Right. And, and let me tell you what it has done. And, and I can speak to this and people don't like to, but what it has done to in the African-American community. Um, I talked about and it shocked people in Louisiana. Uh, it was before anyone ever knew me outside of Louisiana, I guess. I said, listen, one day this woman came to the table and she said, I'm I'm surprised that you you're an African-American female Democrat and you're going to speak against choice. I said, because it's become modern day genocide for African-American women in our culture and our in our race and and what happens. I said, and I cannot stand for something that takes more African-American lives. And, and this is where I hit home with it than any other sickness, disease, crime combined a year. Mm-hmm. Abortions take more lives. I say so, you know, so it was a, it was a. I didn't expect it that day. I didn't expect to be called out because I was fighting for for, for life based on my race. But when I was, I said, wait a minute, I, I can't believe that I'm to stand for what I consider to be modern day genocide of my of my, of my African-American community. And I, and I still stand by that statement. Life is important regardless. It transcends race. It transcends party. It transcends culture. It transcends anything that you know, because life is just that important. Senator Jackson, this is the perfect segue to the next topic that we wanted to ask you about, and that is the news that Planned Parenthood of Greater New York has just decided that they're going to remove Margaret Sanger's name, uh, their founder, Margaret Sanger's name from their flagship building in New York due to Margaret Sanger's long-known, pro-lifers have known this for you know, from the start, because of Margaret Sanger's support and advocacy for eugenics. We would love to hear your reflection on that news. Um, This is what I've told people, that not only did lifers know it, but pro-choice people knew it. That's true. Planned Parenthood knew it. It has been a fact that has been hidden. And even as New York decides to remove it from their clinic, the mainstream media has refused refused to truly report it. Because that's something we all knew. And so how do you uphold something that was founded on eugenics to diminish the minority community? How do you go forth? Is the removal of a name alone enough? I mean, listen, I support Black Lives Matter, but it's more than a concept. And as statues are being removed and names are being removed, laws are being passed to correct wrongs, right, in in the United States. But we are to accept the removal of a name of a founder, of someone who fought for this to eradicate the African-American population. But then we don't expect for laws like Roe versus Wade to be overturned, which they advocated for, for the same reason. Extremely hypocritical. That Margaret Sanger um, senator was a very evil-minded woman, and her dislike of uh, people that she considered unuseful to society, people that she thought were a drag on society. And let's face it, a lot of the people she thought could, were a drag on society were people of other races that she couldn't respect. Right. She mm-hmm. even started something called the Negro Project, where she focused a, a whole segment of her attention on diminishing the the black population of the United States. And she was able, even able to get buy-in from some prominent African-Americans of the time because she did sell it as a liberation from the hardship of having children. And to me, this is such an assault on all our hearts of, as mothers. I mean, children are difficult, but children are not hardships. They are the blessings of our lives, and all of us of every race feel the same way. 
Yeah, yeah, and that's the issue. And, and so where we are right now is this. Planned Parenthood abortion industry, the abortion industry was set up to rule out and, and, and people, you know, based on classism, based on racism. How can we continue to prioritize and call that choice? Mm-hmm. That's my question. How do we have such an uprising in America to unify America, right? To right the wrongs of the past, but to remove her name and say, we're not going to make it a part of the conversation as regards to life. You have to. The purpose of all this has to come out and it has to be discussed. And people need to know, because I believe the more people know how abortion was really set up and what it was set up for and, and who advocated for it and why, they won't consider it a choice anymore. They will consider it just what it is. That's exactly right, because the Planned Parenthood removal of Margaret Sanger's name, it's just a name change. It's not a policy change. Planned Parenthood still sees some human beings as unwanted, whereas our worldview is such that there's no such thing as an unwanted human being. Every human being is precious. And because this eugenic mentality was there from the very start of Planned Parenthood, it's there in its present. It was there at the Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion, Roe versus Wade. And in a very candid moment, actually, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg spoke to this in a New York Times interview. And she said, at the time that Roe was decided, and then this is a quote, there was concern about population growth and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of. I mean, it's so shocking to hear that. And she says she wasn't endorsing the eugenic motivation of Roe, but but it's just more evidence that this is what caused the legalization of abortion in the first place. Right, right. And that's the thing. You can't, let me tell you, I read it and, and I'm like, it makes no sense with all due respect to, to Madam you know, justice in the sense of you can't split the, you know, you you cannot split it. It is what it is. I've heard the young people say that, and it's the truth. Abortion industry, the abortion industry was birthed out of a eugenic state of mind, and you can't separate it from that. You cannot separate its purpose then from its reality now. Mm -hmm. You can't. How? Mm -hmm. It was definitely born out of a desire to liberate the country from certain types. That's what all this emphasis and this focus on on the reality of Margaret Sanger is teaching the United States. But do you think that people are ready to hear that message and to really, if they really want to dig deep into the roots of racism, do they really want to go near abortion, which has been sold to them as a liberation? I think that maybe not wanting to, but I, I think it's time to. And I think as the conversation is had more and more, that they will be forced to. Sometimes in America, we come to a point where we can't ignore the obvious anymore. I think it's going to come to that point. A conversation regarding eugenics or regarding race, regarding, you know, I've even had to, we've even had to pass laws to reject the notion that when you hear that your child is going to be born with a disability, you abort it, right? Mm -hmm. Discrimination against those with disabilities, because that's what abortion sometimes is. Those are hard conversations, and they've always been hard conversations in America past abortion. It's always been a very hard conversation to talk about race. It's always been a a hard conversation to talk about discrimination, but they've always come to the forefront and come to a head, and I believe in any other area where we've seen it 
come to a head, just like that, it has to happen in, 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 with the issue of life. It can no longer be ignored. And New York thought that they were going to satisfy certain populations by removing her name without even saying, you know, the New York facility, while, why they were removing her name. But this is an odd thing. They never came back and said it and challenged any law. And right now in the state of New York, you can have an abortion up to the time you give birth, but I don't see Planned Parenthood going against that. I don't Mm -hmm. see them taking any steps to right the wrongs of why they were formed. So I think it was symbolic for them, but it has to be brought to the table. It has to be discussed. And this type of, for me, let me say this, this type of classism, because it is, this type of racism, this notion that poor people, those who are not independently wealthy, those who have not had a strong financial background must abort their children because they can't take care of them. That's classism. Mm -hmm. That notion has to end. The fact that she saw a need, Margaret Singer, to decrease the African-American population, the Native American population, that has to end. Life has to matter at every stage, in every race, in every class, in every country, in every state, in every city. And life has to matter regardless, because I believe that we're all fearfully and wonderfully made in the eyes of God. And our defect doesn't denote our value. Because truth be told, we all walk around with defects. Some of them are visible defects. When you walk in a room, someone can see it, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes our children with disabilities, that's how we, we know that when we walk in a room. But some of us walk around every day and nobody sees the pain within our hearts, the struggle that we're going through. We walk around with pretty pocketbooks that sometimes we can't feed our families from, right? <laughs> because we don't have enough money. So sometimes it's not on the surface. It's never okay. It's never okay to devalue someone's life based on their parent class, race, and ability to realize the American dream. It's never okay. It, it seriously isn't. You're so inspiring, Senator Jackson. I wish that the whole country could listen to your words on this. I know that you would change a lot of hearts for the for, towards the right, towards towards love, towards acceptance of our youngest and most vulnerable. No matter no matter what their class, their race, their state, you're really wonderful. Thank you, thank you so much, Senator Jackson, for joining us. It, it was a real privilege on Conversations with Consequences. It is a privilege, and thank you for the work that you do. You are spreading the word about a lot of things that people need to hear about. Continue to remain encouraged. This is not something something uh, that's really given to the strong or to the swift, but it's generally given to those who endure. endure. And you are enduring a task that's worth it. And that's going to be meaningful to the day that you retire. Seriously, you're you're tackling the hard issues. Amen. And thank you so much. And God bless you, Senator Jackson. God bless you. Next on Conversations with Consequences, we chat with Edward Penton. He's the Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Register, and he's been on the Vatican beat for almost 20 years. We're going to hear all about his new book, The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates. Stay tuned right here on EWTN Radio. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm happy to have an old friend with me for this next segment. Many people follow Edward Penton's reporting on all things Vatican for the National Catholic Register. He's here with me today to discuss his new book, which is called The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates. 
Welcome to the show, Edward. Thanks, Gracie. Great to be with you. Edward, you've been covering the Vatican for 20 years. Coming up for 18 now, so you're almost there. Just so too short. That's a long time, and you've seen a lot, a lot of things change. Uh, people coming and going at the Vatican, popes, for instance. So, what led yeah. you to to write a book? Is this your first book? This is my second book. Um, I did write a book on the the family synods back in 2015, but this is my probably the the, the main, the biggest book I've written. And but it's not really all my book. It's not all my all my work. It's the fruit of many years of research by a collaborative team of researchers, international scholars. So it's it's a it's a team effort, and it's uh, it's really. It was the idea was also came from uh, a couple of years or three or four years ago now to do this book really to to equip the cardinals with a good knowledge of the of the potential candidates for pope. So I sort of came onto it a little later on and decided uh, I was asked to to perhaps um, you know edit it and go through it and add anything I wanted. So so that's what I did and uh, it should be out in about a week's time. So is your book aimed at the cardinals specifically? who will be in the conclave so that they can have a better, a more global idea of the cardinals that might yeah. be Pope? Exactly, yes. I mean, there's always been a concern that, and it goes back centuries, that whether the cardinals electing a Pope know enough about the potential cardinals to become Pope. And this has become quite acute in recent years, particularly because Pope Francis doesn't have any more the meeting of cardinals. When there's a cardinal making consistory, he stopped having those meetings, which is a good chance for cardinals to get to know each other. So they don't have that. And even at the last conclave, they a few complained that they didn't have, they found it quite confusing. There was a lack of information about various cardinals. And so this book really aims to try to put that right. But it's not aimed just at the cardinals, it's also aimed at, at the faithful, because the faithful, it's very important, really, that we know who could become Pope, although we don't have a say as much, we, we can pray for the right Pope, and many do and, and wish to. And this book really is aimed at aiding that and to give, so not just the cardinals uh, a good knowledge of who could become Pope, but also the faithful and to know who to pray for. It used to be that Popes were always Italians. Or, or it was like that for many centuries. And yes. that, of course, changed with Pope John Paul II. Does that complicate knowing who the man is for the cardinals and even for the faithful, that these are people, these are cardinals that can come from any part of the world and, and hopefully will. It's wonderful to have the whole world represented in the papacy. Yes. Well, that's, um, as you say, that's quite a recent thing, I think, for I think 450 years up until John Paul II, uh, they were they were always Italians, and so this is a, a fairly new thing that uh, you can get popes from any part of the world, and uh, so, so that that is we try to cater for that in the book. We've got cardinals from a whole variety of nations, um, and there are of course quite a few Italians too, um, but that also makes it harder to to predict who who could become pope because the the choice of cardinals is much wider now um, the church is much more international than it perhaps it used to be and so that obviously makes it more challenging to predict but yes so, so the, there is a, a very strong chance that it could be a non-italian but it could also go back to the italians because sure. there have been quite obviously as we know a few upheavals in the last few years and some say well we they'll want 
want it to go back to the sort of safe hands of the Italians. So that's <laughs> so that's uh, that's quite possible. Yeah. In your book, you detail 19 potential candidates. Yes. How did you come up for this list? Obviously, there are everybody has favorites. I have my favorite cardinals, I think, and probably Catholics who are paying attention and who have their own interests uh, or their own tastes and the things that they find uh, most important have their favorites. How did you come up with a list of 19? Right. Well, we chose them because um, we felt that they had the greatest chance of being elected pope given their backgrounds, their reputations for leadership. We divide each profile into the three offices of bishop. And so we, we sort of chose them on those three offices, so the office of sanctity, governance, and teaching. Hmm. And so if they match those, we felt if they show certain proficiency in those areas, whether they are, put, to put it crudely, on the left or on the right, we thought they should be included. So we have, you know, so we have, for example, we have Cardinal Matteo Zuppi uh, from Bologna, who's considered to be quite a liberal candidate cardinal but he's got a reputation for for various strengths in leadership and so forth and so we wanted to put him in but we also have cardinal raymond burke for instance who's considered to be on the on the right or on the conservative or orthodox side and so we have him too so but all the the benchmarks are really the sanctity governance and teaching and whether they show proficiency in those areas also whether they have a sort of general favorability ranking in the church we thought that if they if they have a certain reputation they should be included and so we have the sort of well-known cardinals as well but all based on these criteria well this may sound frivolous to you ed but i hope that cardinal burke is elected because one time i had dinner with him in rome in a group of people and he ordered my dinner for me and he was (laughs) so i want to be able to say that the pope ordered my dinner for me (laughs) (laughs) and by the way he made a fantastic choice it was the most delicious meal i had in rome Well, that's very uh, typical of him. He's very much a gentleman. And in fact, what I hope from this book you get is is the real essence of the character of each cardinal, because, you know, someone like Cardinal Burke does get, I think, and I think many people feel he gets an unfair, unfair reception often in the press uh, because he takes a, a conservative line. And so he gets a lot of opposition. But that doesn't portray him really as he really is. And uh, anyone who knows him knows that he's a very great gentleman and a very humble, very pleasant cardinal and I think uh, that hopefully comes across in the book and that comes across with all the cardinal candidates you get a good idea of their character as well as why they stand on certain church teachings how they've governed and and how they see the sanctity of their office well Edward I was being um, frivolous but the truth is it was a delightful evening and and he is a gentleman and and in the most beautiful sense he's gentle Cardinal Burke yes he's gentle and kind and 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 extremely thoughtful I I happen to be a big fan of his. (laughs) Whether or not he ordered my dinner, that's a separate thing entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what about, let me ask you, what about the idea that the next pope will come from the, again, from the Southern Hemisphere, maybe from Africa? We, you know, we we do hear these things out here in the the Catholic world. Yes, well, that could well happen. Of course, the church is growing fastest in Africa. So, and the pope has chosen as cardinals, he's gone more to what he says are the peripheries, those in the global South. So he's chosen quite a few more cardinals to come from the global south, and so they have. There's more chance that they could be elected. On the other hand, they are quite recently made cardinals; they haven't had much experience, and so that doesn't that doesn't increase their chances so much. Although it's quite possible, but but yes, I think there is a good chance that you could get somebody from Asia or Africa, where the church is growing fastest. And often there's been complaints in the 
the past that, oh, well, the, the Cardinals are too Eurocentric or too Western-centric. And you need nowadays, because the church is so universal and so globalized, that you need to have a, a pope who uh, speaks for the, the global south, as I say, where the church is growing faster. So that could well happen, yeah. Well, it does seem to me that the prelates from places in the world where the church is vibrant and growing and young, they do seem to have something that they can offer the rest of the church, right? Whereas uh, I know in, in Europe and, and even here in America, there's a horrible sort of post-Christian malaise that we, yes. that we are living through. Yes, that's true. And uh, often it's said in Africa, especially the, the hierarchy is... is very orthodox they they very take very seriously the church's teaching they don't wish to change it they don't wish to tinker with it and many feel and i think there's an increasing number of people in the west uh, of, of faithful in the west who feel that that is what the church needs is someone who is who does stand for the church and stand for the church's teaching and and doesn't waver and certainly you get that in the, the global parts of the global south especially africa i mean cardinal robert Sarah, for example is a good example of someone who who is so unwilling to compromise with the spirit of the world and really is a, a true believer, someone who really does stand by the church's teaching. And that may well put him in a, in a sort of pole position, if you like, for, for being elected. And also, he is, as a lot of people think, he's very sort of prophetic. I mean, he speaks, he speaks to people about the issues of today in a very spiritual and, and uh, brings in the supernatural, which many say is lacking in the church in the West and that that's been lost. So there could be that, um, that does make his chances of being elected, someone like Cardinal Sarah, much stronger, I think. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Edward Penton. He's the Vatican reporter for the National Catholic register about his book called The Next Pope, The Leading Cardinal Candidates. Edward, I was going to ask you about Cardinal Sarah because he's another one of my favorites. And let's see, I want him to be Pope because he signed a book for me. And so I would yes. have a book that the Pope signed. <laughs> Yes. I'm being frivolous yes. again, but but truly, I've read uh, two of his books. His first book, which is his autobiography, it's an amazing book. It has three or four chapters right in the middle that every Catholic should read, whether or not they're interested yes. in the biography of Cardinal Sarah. But he really God connects. Yes. God or nothing. Yes. Thank you. And he really connects the dots. He did for me anyway, and I think he would for most readers, as to the modern culture's attack on the basis of so much that makes. Uh, human lives valuable and, and, and enables us to flourish. Yes, exactly. I, that's just what I was saying earlier. I think that, that he speaks to people who who find the church has become rather rudderless and rather lacking in, in a voice and in uh, teaching to apply to the current uh, uh, situations in the world, particularly now. So, And I think many feel that Cardinal Sarar is, is one of others who, who has that ability to speak with a prophetic voice. And I think that's uh, something that could come that could be considered important to the next conclave among the sacred college so that's that's one of your that's one of your categories right prophetic no you told me sanctity the ability to yes. govern and teaching but teaching would include the prophetic voice yes that's right yes yes in fact i think the teaching office in the book is the most interesting and perhaps the most extensive part of each profile because that does give you best the best idea of of just how prophetic and how clued in each cardinal is to, to what's going on and how much they consider teaching and morality and all of that to be of great importance. Of course, that's not the only criteria, but that is an important one, we thought. Mm. And what about an American, Edward? 
Yes, well, we've got two Americans. As I said, Cardinal Raymond Burke is in there, and we have Cardinal Sean O'Malley of Boston. Now, usually the, the cardinal who belongs to a superpower is considered this goes back to sort of i think the 18th century or longer they're usually considered not to be strong candidates because they already have a lot of power in the world anyway of, of their you know connected to the nation that they belong to but i think that's not necessarily the case these days that's going back to sort of when you know we had the papal states and the church was very much more involved in in sort of politics than it is now so i think that there is a good chance, I think, or at least an increased chance that, that there could be an American Pope elected, despite those sort of caveats from the past. But we'll have to see. But certainly, we feel that Cardinal O'Malley and Cardinal Burke have probably the best um, chances, at least based on the criteria that we put up, to be elected. Although Cardinal O'Malley is, is getting on a little in the years. He's, I think he's up for retirement this year. He's 75 or more. So, But that doesn't preclude him, of course, from being elected. Any cardinal could, in fact, any baptized Christian can be, can be elected. But uh, any cardinal can be elected even if they're over 80. So it's, it's quite possible. You know, I didn't know that, Edward, what you just mentioned, that any baptized Christian could be elected pope. That's interesting. Yes. Yes, it's it's um, not often said. In fact, you don't have to be. There have been, I think, eight cases. I put it in the book where cardinals have been, uh, non-cardinals have been elected pope. So it doesn't. They don't have to be cardinal. They could be. Usually, they are, of course. And and those who weren't cardinals were bishops or priests, I believe. But uh, yeah. And what about the age? What do you think? Is there a thought that the next pope should be a younger man? Or, or do the do these about a political kind of um, ideas? No, where should the pope be from? How old should he be? Does that not do you think that figures into the conclave, their deliberations? Yeah, I think it does. I think it does, Gracie, because I think they want to obviously have somebody who's obviously able and and not um, not failing in any way in, in their faculties. So I think um, they will try to go for somebody younger if they can. Obviously, they chose Jorge Bergoglio in 2013, and he was, I think, 78 at the time. So, uh, you know, they. but of course, 78, as I say, in Vatican years is not that, not that old. So uh, they, yeah, but they they could easily choose, um, go for someone much younger this time, um, in which case you could get somebody like Cardinal Zuppi or or Cardinal Erdo of, of Budapest, Hungary, who's still quite young. I think he's in his 60s still. So, um so yes, but that age does come into it certainly, and as 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 well as nationality. Now, things in the church cannot be divided as in politics and uh, into right and left, liberal and conservative. Obviously, we we don't we can't cut ourselves to, uh, pin ourselves to those labels, and nor should yes. we. Uh, but what about the idea that um, we had Pope Benedict? emeritus now but that he was so strong uh, in theology and orthodoxy and in his comprehension and the way that he exposed that the moral relativism was was the great dictator of our age and then pope francis who takes a different line and is um as he's you know he says so i love his spanish expressions how he says que tira los platos tira los platos al aire a ver que se a ver que se uh, que se rompan you know throw the plates in the air and let them let them fly and break and then yes. we'll see uh, and yes. and that's it's a wonderful thing too it's it's a different style and and it allows um it allows um people to experience the church and to relate to the church in different ways that maybe they were missing mm -hmm. what do you mm -hmm. think about that do you think that there's an issue that there is this uh desire to maybe strike a new a new tone that the church needs maybe a new tone 
Well, yes, I mean, that's it. Um, there is a Roman saying that a fat pope follows a thin one, which means <laughs> often, a, uh, so to put it crudely, I mean, we, yes, we don't like to use these labels, and but, you know, somebody, a, a, pre, a, a pope who's perhaps more liberal uh, will tend to be followed by someone who's more conservative and vice versa. So the pendulum tends to swing uh, between the left and the right, but but that's not always the case, and um, it doesn't that always follow quite like politics in that sense, and so it could easily um, continue. Someone, somebody could continue very much the France's is line. What I suspect might happen, though, I don't like to go into predictions too much, but what I suspect might happen is that you get someone who does uh, wish to continue uh, Francis's sort of direction, but he will be more perhaps diplomatic, less throwing the plates around and more <laughs> sort of conciliatory perhaps um, and unifying. And that might, that might be the case, but, um, but we'll, we'll have to see about that. But uh, yeah, I think that's, that's probably the way it will go um, at, at, as far as I can see at the moment. So, Edward, if you don't mind be, me becoming a little more personal, you are, if you don't mind me mentioning it, a convert, I believe, to the Catholic faith. That's right. And you yes. are a Catholic journalist. Um, what what drew you to the faith and, and how has being a Catholic journalist uh, informed that that conversion and, 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 and made it more powerful? Yes, uh, thanks for the question. Well, it was really, um, uh, I was teaching actually in Africa, in Tanzania with, with Benedictines. I was an Anglican at the time uh, with German Benedictines uh, for a couple of years back in the 90s. And uh, and I came to the growing realization, I was already searching, but I came to the growing realization that the, the, the true faith, the, the fullness of the faith, um, and the truth was found in the Catholic Church, and uh, it was not in the Anglican Church. And when I came back, I, I was received into the church, and um, and have never regretted it. It's been uh, it's it's something that I've always felt to be very sure, despite all of the the, the politics and the weaknesses of our of our human nature. Um, that's never uh, departed from me, and I think that the church always has does have that. Um, the fullness of the truth so that's so that's what brought me in and i think my journalism has, has only helped me in that in that sense and i hope um has helped readers too i've tried to 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 inform the articles with faith and to try and um help uh, educate not just uh me but also the readers too and that's uh, it's in that way it's been very edifying to my faith i find well, you're doing a wonderful job, Edward, you, and, and I know that you have been edifying to, to the readers and, and bringing them closer to God and, um, and to our, our beautiful church. And it's been a real Thank pleasure you. talking to you, Edward, and getting a closer look at your new book, which I'm really looking forward to reading. Um, thank you for all you do, keeping a watchful eye on Rome. And listeners, to learn more about the next Pope, visit sophiainstitutepress.com and make sure to read all of Edward Penton's fine reporting and analysis at the National Catholic Register by, by visiting ncregister.com. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. 
This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation Prison Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. When we enter into the scene of his multiplication of loaves and fish to feed the crowd of 5,000 men, likely 5,000 women, probably 15,000 or more kids, allows us to ponder three important aspects of our Christian life. First is the importance of prayer. The scene begins with St. Matthew's telling us Jesus withdrew to a deserted place by himself. Jesus wanted to pray, and he knew that he needed to get away from the hustle-bustle, push-and-muscle of the multitudes. This type of prayerful withdrawal was very common for Jesus. Evangelist tells us that he would regularly rise early before dawn to go off to a deserted place to pray. Before he commenced his public ministry, he went into the desert for a month and a half to pray and fast. At the transfiguration, he took Peter, James, and John up an exceedingly high mountain in order to pray. Jesus was, in short, constantly withdrawing from the crowds in order to do what was most important, which was to enter into undistracted communion with his Father in prayer. He did this not merely out of desire and need, but also as an example to form us in a similar need and desire. Jesus is constantly saying to us, come away by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. These words, of course, refer to our daily prayer, but they also refer to more extended periods of prayer like retreats on weekends or throughout weekdays. The summer is a time in which we should be trying to make such time for prayer. I'll be beginning my annual retreat on Wednesday. Please keep me in your prayers. Second thing we encounter in this gospel is Jesus' great compassion for the multitudes. When Jesus saw the throng awaiting him when he was trying to pray, it would have been easy for him to have gone a little, gotten a little frustrated or irritated, but he rather was filled with mercy. St. Matthew tells us his heart was moved with pity for them. That expression is the softening of the original Greek, a more, trans, more literal translation of which would have been Jesus was sick to his stomach with compassion as he saw the crowds. We see what he did. He cured their sick, then he fed them. That same original verb in Greek is used by the gospel writers to introduce likewise how Jesus, out of gut-busting mercy, taught the crowds, forgave sin, and at his prayer to the harvest master for laborers, then calling those praying to be those laborers. Jesus is always looking at you and me with mercy, and he's healing, feeding, teaching, forgiving, and summoning us to join him in his mission of mercy. That brings us to the third point which concerns how Jesus wants to incorporate us into his ordinary and miraculous exercise of compassion on the crowds. In the gospel, out of concern for the multitudes, the apostles tried to get Jesus to dismiss the crowd so that they could go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus says, however, there's no need for them to go away. Give them some food yourselves. Very often we, like the apostles, try to pass the buck on others' difficulties, saying that's their problem not mine. Everyone fend for himself. Jesus wanted the apostles and he wants us to feel responsible. We should also note that when Jesus saw the infamous crowds, he could have easily worked a miracle from scratch. He who created the heavens and the earth from nothing, who fed the Israelites in the desert with miraculous manner and quails from heaven, could have easily satiated the hungry multitude all by himself. He didn't need human assistance, but that isn't the way he chose to act. He wanted to start with his disciples' generosity. He wanted to involve them in his miracle. He wanted to start with the best and the most people had and bring their generosity to completion. They had meager resources, just five loaves and two fish that they seemed to have obtained from a little boy. But Jesus started there. 
The shepherd and Lord, whom Psalm 23 had prophesied, would lead his sheep to green pasture and set a table before them, had them sit down in the lush green grass as he looked as he took the gifts, looked up to heaven, said the blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to give to the crowds. The gifts multiplied not at the beginning, because they didn't keep coming back to Jesus, but in the distribution. And Jesus overworked the miracle, creating more than what was needed, such that each of the 12 apostles was left with a wicker basket full of leftovers. It's a reminder of what God can do when we unite our resource to his, our compassion to his, our prayer to his. All three of these lessons, the call to prayer, Jesus' mercy, and his desire to incorporate us in his miracles and merciful love, all converge in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. The raw material for the sacreds and axis is not grain and grapes, but bread and wine, which is a combination of God's fruit of the earth and vine and the work of human hands. God incorporates our own work and sacrifice into this great miracle to which the multiplication of the loaves and the fish points. In the offertory, the priest says, Pray, brothers and sisters, that this sacrifice, yours and mine, may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. The Eucharist is the union between Christ's sacrifice of his whole life, culminating on Calvary, with our sacrifice, the sacrifice of our work, our time, our resource, indeed our whole life, offered as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Celebration of the Mass is where Jesus draws us with his eyes, heart, and guts full of loving compassion to heal us, feed us, and strengthen us in our vocation as laborers in his vineyard. The Mass is where we go into the desert apart from worldly distractions to meet and be with Jesus. The Mass is where Jesus seeks to unite us to his compassion and sends us forth to carry his mercy to the world. The Mass is where we bring all our efforts and our very selves, even if it seems all we have in our are a few breadcrumbs and half an anchovy, placing them into Jesus' hands so that he can unite them to his, looking up to heaven, blessing and breaking them, and then giving those gifts back transformed so that they can be multiplied in caring for the immense crowds. Jesus never stops looking at us and the world with compassion. Nothing can separate us from his loving glance. As we prepare for Mass on Sunday, we ask him so to transform us in this time with him in the desert that we may return to the world with wicker baskets full to feed the deepest hungers people have. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 